Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul from BlakeRadio.com. yours on the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. I'm your host, Deirdre Shuler, and today we are going to take a journey back in time. Well, they say history repeats itself, and usually it is not in a positive way. We take a look back at American history, and it's not so admirable time of slavery when men were so desperate to be free, they were willing to die in pursuit of it. In 1811, an event that became the largest slave insurgency in U.S. history occurred on the east bank of the Mississippi River, currently the St. John the Baptist, St. Charles, and Jefferson parishes in Louisiana. In fact, more of the revolters died than the white men who enslaved them. Only two white men died and nearly 95 black people died in confrontations with militia and via their executions after trial. Tools of the, sla- the tools the slaves used were no match for the ammunition of their oppressor or the fear tactics the whites used in decapitating their captives and placing their heads on piles to cause fear in the, in the future slave revolt. A two-day 26th slave rebellion reenactment of the German Coast Uprising took place on November 8th and 9th as a result of a six-year project led by artist Dred Scott and collaborating with filmmaker John Ackenfuss that included hundreds of local community members who started off in the river parishes of New Orleans on November 8th and ended in Congo Square on Saturday, November 9th, where historical reenactors and local artists gathered in celebration with music and dance to remember the 1811 Resistance for Freedom. 
In attendance was filmmaker John Akimba, trombonist Delfeo Marcellus, rapper Truth Universal, and the Kumbuka African Drum and Dance Collective. Well, my guest today is Dred Scott, who's here to talk about the event. So let's welcome artist Dred Scott to the show. How are you, Mr. Scott? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. It's quite my pleasure. Well, before we get into the event of the reenactment, why don't you tell the listeners something about yourself? I know you were, you're originally from Chicago. Yeah, yeah, I grew up in Chicago. I'm a visual artist, and, you know, my work generally shows in galleries and museums, museums like the Whitney Museum or MoMA's PS1, uh, but I also show on street corners, and the thing that kind of unites all the work is that I'm really trying to have an audience confront a lot of the prevailing ideas of America and often to reimagine how the world could be, you know, radically different and far better. I tell people I make revolutionary art to propel history forward. Well, didn't you adopt the name Dred Scott, which was after a slave named Dred D.R.E. Scott, who sued the court for freedom after being taken into a free state by its owner? Unfortunately, the Supreme Court ruled against him, saying that black people were not included as citizens in the Constitution. So uh, tell me um, why you changed your name to Dread, D-R-E-A-D. Is there some significance with that? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think America is a country that was founded on slavery and genocide and, you know, continues to be based on exploitation and oppression. And I wanted people when they, you know, heard of my name to actually think back to that, you know, famous uh, 1857 ruling by the Supreme Court where it's part of the ruling. I mean, it's the most well thought out articulated argument for white supremacy I've ever read. And it's deeply rooted in the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence and UN, U.S. and British law and custom up until that point. And so, you know, they, they said, that, I mean, almost verbatim, that there are no rights that a black person has that a white man is bound to respect. And while, you know, obviously chattel slavery is, you know, not the, the economic foundation of American society right now, the social relations between sort of, um, you know, the descendants of the enslaved and the descendants of enslavers are largely the same. And I wanted people to, to look back at that history. And, yes, I did change the spelling from, from D-R-E-D to D-R-E-A-D because I liked both the concept of fear and, and also at the time I had dreadlocks and, and you know, wanted to make a nod to uh, sort of the concept of dread in Rastafarian culture, even though I'm, I'm not a Rast. In fact, I'm an atheist. I, I did like the, the concept of, of dread in the Rasta sense, but also of fear. Um, and so, yeah, I, I combined a, a few few names into one, but I think Dred Scott's a very appropriate name, and when people hear it, if they have to think back about American history and, and that particular history, it's, it's actually quite quite important. Well, quite interestingly, I, I spoke to someone recently that had no idea that when whites got off the boat uh, in America, they they murdered a hundred million. Native Americans. I looked at this show where they show these tombstones, miles and miles of tombstones, and each tombstone represented a nation of of American Indians that killed off. 
Um, well, the, the, the genocide that, that happened is, is actually complicated. And first of all, it's not just when they arrived at Plymouth Rock. I mean, Europeans arrived first in, in South and Central America, and, and actually that's where the majority of the, the deaths happened of indigenous, the indigenous population. Um, and about 95% of the indigenous population of the Americas was actually killed off principally by disease. It's not that the Europeans didn't want to kill them and there were brutal massacres that Columbus and Cortez carried out. But I think it's um, sort of incorrect to actually say that it was murder. It was in part, I mean, a lot of it was murder, but but it was, you know, the diseases that the Europeans brought with them, there was not a, a immunity and resistance to. So over the course of about a century and a half to two centuries, uh, the the, popula- the indigenous population was absolutely decimated. So at the point when, when uh, sort of the British colonialists came and touched place in North America, the the, the land was radically different than than um, you know there, there had been a major, major, major die-off on, on north and south, and so the you know minor descriptions of earlier travelers uh, from the the mid late late 15 and early 1600s by the time they got to, to you know 1620 or even more but the, uh, the early 1700s where the major british occupation was happening the, the americas was deeply depop- depopulated of indigenous population and it was 100 yes, million they did put smallpox in blankets and gave them to the indians did that, they not? That, so that's true too but that were but that was that was absolutely deliberate, but that's actually a later period, and there weren't 100 million natives or indigenous population to kill at that point. Most of them had already been eliminated prior to that. The the westward expansion of, of sort of U.S. colonialism, which was deliberate and an intentional genocide, was on the heels of a much greater, uh, you know, elimination and die-off and genocide that happened in in the centuries before. And I think it's important to for people who, who look at history to, to see the see the relationships of the indigenous population that was a were thriving cultures the Incas the Aztecs the Maya the Mixtec um, and and then the populations you know the, the Mississippi and mound builders and stuff that were in, in the north you know, in North America um, and to, to not lump it all into one one thing when when there was westward expansion of, of sort of the United States in the the late 17 and early 1800s which did include a very conscious genocide spreading of smallpox and and you know even you know forcing people off land and you know the famous trail of tears which um you know was, was just brutal extermination and and you know repopulation and dislocation um which people should be aware of but i i think it's if if, if we don't actually look at the connection of this the, the conquest of the spanish and the diseases that they spread in you know killing off hundreds of millions then we're, we're missing missing part of the story Okay. Um, you're described, as you say, as a revolutionary artist doing revolutionary art to propel history forward. What does that mean in, in terms of propelling history forward? Are, are you saying that you seek to, to bring unknown history to, to the populace? No, but that I do... Well, I, I think that, that it's known. I mean, you know, history is noble, and but I do think there is a overall, you know, forward motion. That doesn't necessarily mean improvement, but it does mean forward motion. For example, the you know the population is larger; it's much more 
um, sort of industrialized than it was, say, you know, three, three or 400 years ago. And the social organization is based on the economy that you have. And right now, we have a capitalist economy that's a capitalist imperialist economy that dominates the planet and is causing tremendous suffering. And I look forward to a day when there you know, are no classes and there is no exploitation. And so, you know, I, I hope my work contributes to people um, both looking at the, the concrete sort of brutality that's being expressed in by you know capitalism and imperialism today, but also fighting to get to a world that is no longer scarred by the private ownership by a small, small handful of people of the great resources and wealth that humanity as a whole creates. Now you mentioned uh, that your art is in some of the more important um, art institutions. Uh, and back in 1987, you, you got a reaction from your art or about your art from George Bush, who, who, who was upset about an art piece of what you entitled, What is the Proper Way to Display a U.S. Flag? Uh, can you, do you care to talk about the reaction you got in reference to your, your art from the president? Yeah, um, well, the work was made in 1988, and it was condemned by George Bush and outlawed by Congress in 1989. And it's a work called What is the Proper Way to Display a U.S. Flag? It was um, what I call an installation for audience participation. It's the kind of work that shows in a gallery or museum, but it has uh, elements that en- enable the audience to interact with it, and that's an important part of the work. There were three key elements in the work. One was a photo montage that had text on the photo montage that says, what is the proper way to display a U.S. flag? And also on the photo montage were two photographs, one of a uh, of South Korean students burning American flags, holding signs that say, Yankee, go home, son of a bitch. And then the other photograph was flag-draped coffins uh, coming back from Vietnam in a troop transport draped in an American flag. Below that was a, a shelf that had books on it that had blank pages that people could write responses to the question, what's the proper way to display a U.S. flag? And below that was a three-by-five-foot American flag that was on the ground that people had the option of standing on as they wrote their responses. And, you know, the thousands of people, you know, c- you know, came to interact with it. They stood in line, and they wrote a range of things. I mean, many, you know, were very con- contemplative. Some actually, you know, called for my death and said I should be shot and, and and uh, you know, were, were racist in tone, and and others were actually saying, "Look, the police, you know, killed one woman." I recall said, "You know, the police kicked over, you know, murdered her brother, killed her brother, shot her brother, and uh, then walked over and kicked over the body to quote make sure the end was dead unquote." And thank you for the opportunity to to sort of stand on on old glory. She writes into the book and. And so it was a, an artwork which enabled people who feel victimized by America and have been exploited and oppressed by America at equal footing to discuss what the U.S. flag and U.S. patriotism represents as people who were, you know, so-called proud patriotic Americans. And um, so that piece, you know, became the center of national controversy. It got to the point where George Bush publicly called it disgraceful. There were demonstrations at my school. Uh, which was shown at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where I was an undergraduate student at the time. And, you know, there were re- racist demonstrations of reactionary veterans that, that uh, you know, said the flag and the artist hanged them both high, uh, bringing back images of lynching. Um, you know, the, the school received bomb threats and death threats, and it, all of that prompted George Bush to weigh in and call the work disgraceful, which I felt was a tremendous honor. I mean, you know, not only did the President of the United States know my work existed, but he didn't like what I was doing. That was something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And then Congress actually weighed in after a complicated twist and turns and broader efforts to make patriotism 
sort of compulsory and outlaw um, certain forms of political dissent, particularly using the American flag. Um, they passed legislation which included wording to outlaw my artwork, which was, you know, really significant. And, and while I didn't expect that my or other artists would have, you know, be outlawed at a national level again, I did see that it really showed the power of art. That, you know, the United States with its Air Force, Navy, Marines, Army, troops, troops, and more troops, cops, cops, and more cops, felt so threatened by an artwork that people might actually question, you know, what the U.S. is and why why we need to worship its flag, that they wanted to go to the extraordinary measure of banning this artwork by a previously unknown student artist at the time. Well, based on what you just said, we in talking about disgrace, we have a disgrace sitting in the White House right now that's shaking and moving things up. And so do you feel that in response, citizens also should be out there shaking things up on their own to remind ourselves of the freedoms that were fought and that should not be taken lightly? Well, I mean, I don't think people have a lot of freedom here, actually. I think, you know, again, it was a country founded on slavery and genocide, and, and I do think people fought to have sort of be treated as, as human beings and be treated as citizens. But, I, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I think Trump is actually a fascist and truly dangerous, and people should be in the streets much the way they are in Hong Kong or were in Puerto Rico when they drove the governor out of Puerto Rico or, or in the streets as they are now and about to be in Colombia and Chile. Um, you know, I, I think people need to, to not hope that the some other, you know, sort of elected electoral power, particularly the Democrats, will save them. I think we're in a very, very dangerous time. But I also don't think Trump is some like aberration. I mean, I think, you know, you look at the, the, the wars that were launched under Bush and, and con, con, you know, continued under Obama. You look at the the devastation of the planet that these presidents have done. You look look at the, you know, the the murder by police that have happened year after year after year under all these previous presidents. I, you know, I mean, you know, people talk about Lincoln as he freed the slave. Well, he was an avowed white supremacist. He actually, literally, is on record as saying that the white race is superior to the black race, and that's the supposed, you know, radical president. I, I just don't have a whole lot of faith in, in this country or its presidency. And so while I think that, that you know, um, Trump is, is truly, truly dangerous for humanity and on any number of levels, from the, the spoiling of the environment to the, the, you know, building of concentration camps to the separation of children and keeping them in cages, the demonization, demonization of immigrants and migrants to the potential for war, you know, that's, it's truly terrible. But the question is, what are, what are people going to do about it? And I don't think we should try and fight to get, to get back to some supposed rights that we have, but actually try and, you know, sort of escape forward to to a society we'd actually want to live in. I agree. I think it, it should all come down. Let them bring it all down. So hopefully we can rebuild a better country. Now I want to ask you also, let's get into the uh, reenactment the largest mm-hmm. slave revolt in U.S. history, which, again, took place in 1811. And how did you bring it all about? What what made you decide to uh, uh, do the reenactment? Well, as an artist, I'm always thinking of ideas to talk about big questions confronting humanity. And one of the ones that people are thinking a lot about in the United States is the position of black people in society, but also how people get free. I think I've been thinking a lot about artwork that doesn't just show the horrors of sort of the, the present day, but also 
looks at how people, you know, have fought for justice and fought for freedom in the past. And, you know, looking back at, you know, a slave rebellion, including the most, the largest slave rebellion in the history of the United States, one that had a, an aim of trying to seize all of Orleans territory, which is modern day Louisiana, and set up an African republic that would have been a sanctuary for Africans and people of African descent that would have outlawed slavery. It was a very radical idea at the time and something that should be more known now. And so that poses a lot of questions for the present. The, the artwork itself, which was a slave rebellion reenactment, which involved hundreds of reenactors uh, marching for 26 miles over the course of two days, chanting on to New Orleans, freedom or death, we're going to end slavery, join us. Through exurban New Orleans, past oil refineries and gated communities and trailer parks and uh, strip malls and ma and pa stores, you know, that was both about this past. There was a, a strong point of wanting people to understand and know this past. And, you know, in the intro to the show, you talked about how this was sort of a, ter- a terrible thing. And, and, yes, the brutality afterwards was terrible. But this is one of the best things that's happened in the shores of the United States where people actually rose up to fight for freedom, not just individually escaped as righteous as that would have been, but to actually collectively come together and try and overthrow a system of slavery. It's a very righteous thing, and people should celebrate that. They should know about it. The people who led those rebellions were were heroes. And so that sort of – I wanted people to know about that past, but I also wanted them to think about how we get free in the present. What's the connection between people who – you know, we're not, say, trying to form a super PAC in 1811 to to maybe get whipped only on Monday through Friday, but said that the only way they could actually get free was to do the hard and complicated and heavy work of figuring out how to overthrow the system of enslavement. And they set out on that mission. And so I think that, you know, boldness of vision and that courage has a lot for people in modern times to think about what would that mean if we approached, you know, other other questions, even like, you know, we were just talking about, um, you know, sort of the, the current presidency. What if people looked at the horror of that and instead of saying, well, we think maybe we could possibly get a few more Democrats in, in Congress in, in 2020, but actually said, well, the problem is, you know, like in 1811, the problem was they were enslaved. The solution was to end slavery. Well, the problem is that there's a, a, a fascist consolidating a fascist form of rule in, in, in the United States, and, and the solution would be to drive that regime from power. Oh, absolutely. Now, can you tell those who don't know anything about the 1811 revolt what it was about and how it came about? Because the plantations were pretty far apart, weren't they? How did the people come together and and form the the revolution? Because I would assume that there was a lot of uh, uh, slaves that did not agree with it and told the masters. Well, actually, the thing that's really important about this particular revolt was not that the the, the enslaved actually told the, the enslavers. I mean, that, that this was planned for a year or more, probably a couple of years. And, you know, the, the plantations actually were not far apart. They were, I mean, the the, the, the sort of geographic layout of the, the plantations, which should actually be, be much better to call them um, slave labor camps. I mean, plantation sounds quaint, but these were actually slave labor camps. And the the Mississippi was kind of the highway where where they would be able to get their their you know products to market, and the product in this case was principally sugar. Um, and all the so all the plantations had to have access, they had to front onto the Mississippi, and so you had these little narrow like basically 
footprints going onto the Mississippi, but then going for, you know, a half mile or, or up to a few miles from the Mississippi up to uh, Lake Pontchartrain or, or other lakes that were going back away from the Mississippi, there were all these you know, plantations. So there were little slices of land um, with, with, that would go very deep into the, the swamps that that became, you know, that grew sugar. Um, and so they were close by. And, and in, in 1811, or, or probably in 1810, because the rebellion happened in January of 1811, Charles DeLance, who was uh, one of the key leaders of the rebellion, used the freedom of movement that he had. And he may have been a, 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 a slave driver. We're not entirely sure. The historians dispute why he had that freedom of movement. But he could go from plantation to plantation and talk with people. And he kind of recruited people on each plantation to be sort of his lieutenants. And they, in turn, recruited other people sort of to be part of the rebellion. They also relied on the the, the network of maroon cultures. Maroons were people that were, um, you know, uh, formally enslaved, but had escaped, to, in this case, the swamps. They, in, in Jamaica, maroonage, they was more in the mountains, uh, or like it was in Colombia. But in, in New Orleans, the maroons were living away from this, the slave society in, in the swamps and, and had, you know, were defending those regions with, with, they were small societies, but they defended them, you know, at, at point of a gun. And so they lived free, and they could move up and down the, the Mississippi or elsewhere um, without, you know, sort of permits or passes from enslavers. And so the messages could be traveled both by Charles Delon but also by, by some other Maroons. Um, and so they planned for quite some time, as I understand. And again, I'm an artist. I'm not a historian. But based on what I've read, um, you know, they were able to organize this so that when the, you know, days for rebellion that was agreed upon – you know, was was there? Then they could rise up, and it, and they they did have to deal with a couple you know potential traitors that were going to tell the the enslavers. But those people, the the enslaved, actually had a plan to kind of isolate and surround them, so that so they they couldn't tell their enslavers. And um, you know, this rebellion did get off the ground, and and it's quite significant that a rebellion of you know upwards of 500 people was launched in the United States. And while slave rebellions are always a long shot. This one actually had a real plan and chance of success, and you know they, they got a lot of bad luck going against them. Even without that bad luck, they might not have been successful in establishing this African republic. But it was a very, very bad rain when it, it, it the rebellion started, and it slowed down their movements. It was described as ankle-breaking mud that they would have had to walk through, the, so that slowed their progress into the city. They were trying to get from the, the slave labor camps down into the city of New Orleans. They also had a um, plan to seize weapons where they began at the at uh, the Andrew plantation and that that plantation had garrisoned a lot of weapons um, for the planters militia and for whatever reason when the rebellion started they weren't there historians are not sure whether the weapons got moved because the enslavers were worried about some slave rebellion or whether the weapons were taken to fight uh, the Spanish in West Florida it's it's not clear so the the rebels were out outgunned and out ammunition from, from the get. And then there were a couple other things that went against them, including when they eventually got caught in a, uh, a sort of battle with the enslavers. They they were trying to fight guerrilla warfare tactics, but they got in a head-to-head battle. And given that they were outgunned and, and didn't have enough ammunition, it was, it was you know, sort of – it was a real t- tactical and strategic problem for them. But, um, you know, again, this rebellion, the fact that it got off the ground, that it was planned, that it had vision – that's the story here, that, that white people and enslavers were vicious and brutal and, and medieval torture afterwards. That's not news. That's, that's just the backdrop of slavery. But what is news is that this enslaved people rose up, came across 
you know, all these differences that they would have had. People came from different regions of West Africa. Some of them were at war with each other. There were different religions, different languages. And they set all that aside to come together to, to launch this rebellion, which is why, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to reenact that with, with you know, hundreds of reenactors in period costume chanting onto New Orleans, freedom or death, we're going to end slavery, marching for 26 miles and arriving almost victorious in, in at the old U.S. Mint and marching to, to Congo Square in New Orleans. Hello? Hello? Are you there? Yes, you you mentioned oh. one of the revolters, uh, but there were several that you honored. Can you tell us who they yeah. were? Well, there were several. I mean, you know, Marie Rose was one of the key uh, leaders. There was a man named Gilbert who led a, uh, a, an attack on um, – it was Fort St. John. So there were two detachments of the rebellion. There was the main force that was sort of gathering steam and going down river, but they also tried to seize a fort, Fort St. Charles. New Orleans was a fortified city. There were five forts surrounding it in 1811, and one of them was called Fort St. Charles, and a man named Gilbert and a detachment of about eight were trying to seize this fort so there would be more weapons available when the rebels got you know, out of the slave labor camps and down into the city. Um, and so you know, Gilbert led that. There was a man named Jupiter, uh, Hyacinth, Hector. Um, we know the names of 196 of the rebels, some of whom were, were leaders and others of whom were just participants, many of whom um, you know, were put to death and executed or, or killed in battle. Um, but you know, Jessamine was another one. Um, you know, it's, it's, if people are interested in some of the names, they can get a book called On to New Orleans, um, which was written by Albert Thrasher and published by Leon Waters. Leon's a native New Orleanian. And he, you know, it's because of him, actually, that anybody knows this history at all in the 21st century. He, when he was much younger, had a much older cousin tell him that his ancestors fought against slavery. And then when he got older, he researched it along with Albert Thrasher and, and, and um, Malcolm Suber and others. And so that – and they published a book in 1996 about this called On to New Orleans. But it also was part of that list, the names of many of the, the rebels that were part of – and the enslaved that were part of the rebellion. Well, now you also filmed the enactment. What What is the plan for the film? Are you taking it to school or, or putting it on the Internet or or can people buy it or tell me about the no, film that you made? None of it. No. None of the above. The filmmaker is a man named John Acompra, and he's a brilliant, brilliant filmmaker. And, and in, as far as fine art filmmaking, he's the best in the world right now. He's really, truly amazing. And his films almost exclusively show in museums and galleries. Um, and so they tend to be multi-screen uh, projects so that they'll have three or four screens going simultaneously in a complicated sound mix so the sound will move around. And so in, in the case of this, this film, um, it's you know, a film installation, there'll probably be one screen that will have you know, a lot of the footage that was shot during the reenactment. But then I suspect he's also going to take and get historic footage you know, probably from the, the late 1800s or early 1900s um, because film didn't exist in 1811, but he'll probably get footage of New Orleans. And he might have some talking heads of people who were discussing why they participated or, or wanted to participate in the rebellion and the reenactment. And so, um, you know, all these would be going simultaneously. And much like a painting, if you went to a museum to see a painting, an audience would have to bring some of their ideas and work to figure out exactly what it's about. They're not linear films. A lot of traditional documentary films, you know, A happens, then B happens. They're telling a very direct story. 
in the way John Acompra works, it's it's not so much like that. They're beautiful films, and often one of the things why I really wanted to collaborate with him is he a lot of his work looks at colonialism and the, the uh, decolonial struggle. And it crosses timelines. And so, you know, his films will look at, you know, both the past, say, of, you know, how the British colonized Jamaica and then what that means for, you know, people in the, the, uh, you know, living in England that are of Caribbean, you know, or Jamaican descent. And so we might have people that that are part of a rebellion in, in say, the the south of England in Handsworth, you know, during the the riots in the the 70s. but then also have a commentator like Stuart Hall who uh, would talk about the history of colonialism and what it means to have the British, you know, in occupying Jamaica, but then what that means for people that are coming, you know, from, from Jamaica into England. And with a statement that he said is, you know, we're, we're here because you were there. Um, And so his films, John's films will actually weave complicated stories together um, in in a nonlinear way, and they're truly beautiful. I mean, this this film was John, uh, the the director of photography for it is um, uh, the man who shot uh, uh, the movie Selma, and he just does really beautiful work. It's Bradford Young, and and so the 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 footage that was shot will be truly truly beautiful. And so there's a an, a sumptuous beauty that that will sort of tell the story, but then the story will be multi layered and complicated. Well, as you said, this was a project six years in the making, and it had to be a community endeavor and organizations had to get involved. Who were some of the organizations and, and the local folks that were involved in, in bringing this about? Yeah, but it definitely was a community-engaged artwork. I mean, it was a performance that I initiated, but the community was deeply involved, which was a, a principle of the project before, you know, it's sort of in conception. And even the, and principally the reenactors, I mean, they, they were not just, you know, mostly hired actors. A lot of them were people who, for whatever reason, wanted to embody the spirit of freedom and emancipation. They got recruited much the way Charles Deland had to recruit people. In 1811, he went from plantation to plantation and recruited his lieutenants, and then those people in turn recruited other people to the rebellion. And so I talked with a handful of people who were either activists or artists or community leaders in some way, and they in turn recruited other people. And it was a lot, I mean, some of it was done online, but most of it was done by word of mouth. Um, And so some of the people that ended up participating are, are um, you know, Pastor Donald August and his wife, who sort of have their church right across the street from the the Woodlands Quarters, which the Woodlands Quarters are, you know, the quarters, when, when you talk about quarters in terms of slave plantations, are the where the slave cabins were. And so the, the Andrew Plantation, which was also known as the Woodland Plantation, had the Woodlands Quarters. It was where the slave cabins were and where the enslaved lived. And so after, you know, uh, slavery was formally and legally abolished, those quarters became the quarters that, you know, sharecroppers occupied. Um, And so even up into the late 50s and early 1960s, you know, basically people who were in destitute, desperate conditions were living in the cabins that basically enslaved people lived in 100 years earlier or 80 years earlier. And there are people that are still living today that, that remember this. And Pastor August's wife, you know, grew up in that neighborhood. And so they, they really wanted to participate because they want younger people to know what is the history of the Woodland Quarters. There were other people like Pastor Stephen Paraloo and his wife Rita, who run the historic Riverlands Church, which is a little bit upriver from where the rebellion began. Um, but there's sort of a whole both tr- attempt, they're attempting to preserve the black culture in the region, but also against, I mean, the region is known as Cancer Alley today. 
because some of the most toxic petrochemical and other uh, you know, toxic uh, 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 chemical production happens in that region, which much of it's almost all of it's poor, but some most there's a lot of black people that live there. And so Pastor Perilou's church is right near the Denka uh, power, um, Denka facility, which produces chloroprene as a byproduct of, of neoprene. And it's the only place in the United States it's produced, and it's a known carcinogen. And so the cancer rates are very, very high in the region. Um, other activists and, and, and leaders who participated are, are um, uh, Pastor Gregory Manning and, and um, others from the, the um, uh, Justice and Beyond Coalition, which uh, they're doing a lot of the activism against Cancer Alley and trying to get these toxic corporations to sort of not continue to poison people. And, and then there were a lot of ordinary people. I mean, there was a descendant of the, the rebels who participated, uh, a young woman named Sammy who came from Florida. She drove nine hours uh, each way to get some training in sort of firing muskets so she could be part of firing, you know, the, the battle scene that happened. It was a, a small part of the reenactment, but there was a battle against U.S. Dragoons and we had live musket fire. And so Sammy's who, who's great, great, grandmother you know was a, one of the 1811 rebels she really wanted to be part of it there were um you know a range of people there was a, a you know former prisoner that participated there were indigenous people because in, in 1811 there were both enslaved indigenous people um who were sold from more up uh you know more the lower south but also some people who were Choctaw from the region some of whom weren't enslaved but participated in the, the rebellion because they saw that the, their fates and the fate of the enslaved were very much bound up. So we had some indigenous sisters and brothers that participated in, in the reenactment with us. Um, well, our, our so, time is growing short. So okay. I just want to say um, if people want to donate to the cause, to the film, yeah. to, to yes. your, your project, who, who could they contact? Well, they should go to our website is the best thing. If they go to slave-revolt.com, and then the uh, the far right menu item is donate, and they can they can make a donation online, um, or if they prefer to send a check, there's information to do that too. And that those are, that funding is really needed. We have had a lot of funding from sources like the Open Society and Via Art Fund and Ford Foundation, um, as well as a lot of individuals. But we we are still raising funding this completion fund. So slave-revolt or hyphen-revolt.com. And click the donate button, and you know there's no donation too small or too large. We'll take a dollar at a time or a hundred thousand dollars at a time. Good enough. Now, uh, again, the curtain is about to drop. So, is there anything that I haven't asked that you you wish to briefly mention before we close? Um, only that this is a project about freedom and emancipation and that it's somewhat you know, important that people, when they look at this period of enslavement, they actually focus their eyes on people trying to get free. And that's what the artwork was actually about. It was really not – it was not a project about slavery. It's a project about courageous people who were rising up to overthrow a system of enslavement. And the, the reenactment, you could see some of the footage on our website, um, you know, some still photography as well as some video. And there's video from The Guardian newspaper. It was a short seven-minute video of this. It's really beautiful. You could see both the connection to the present-day situation in New Orleans and that exurban New Orleans, but, but also the courage of people who basically arrived in the city 
um, as part of the performance as a liberating army. And they created a beautiful liberated space. It was one of the most amazing spaces I've ever been in. And that's why many of the reenactors as well as audience was in, in, in tears at part of it because it was so touching and moving. And I'm just really honored to be part of that. But I would encourage people to, to look at our site or see the Guardian video so you could see footage of what the, the rebellion was like and the reenactment was like. And then in a, about a year, they'll be able to see the John Acomper film. We don't have a, a museum that's committed to, to show it yet, but we'll hopefully be able to announce that soon. Well, it certainly was a grand endeavor, and I thank you, uh, Mr. Scott, for being my guest today and bringing forth a vital history that here to school may be unknown to many. So, uh, well, thanks I'm for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm your host, Deirdre Schuler, and as I said, my guest today is artist Red Scott, and this is the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. And as always, I thank my listeners for making my topic topically yours. We're going to end the show now. You've been listening to the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Souls.